0: Welcome to Monsignor's Parish Radio. Uh, once again, you're going to have to do a little bit of Lenten penance, as it's just me this week. Steve and Andrew are not able to make it this week, so we have the opportunity, actually, to answer uh, more in-depth a question that we received uh, via email. Um, it's actually two questions, and this is how I'll um, I'll tell you the question and, and tell you about uh, how are we going to go about answering it? So the first question is, what happened when Jesus died? Is that something even Is that even something we can know? Uh, this person who submitted the question is learning hyp- about the hypostatic union in class. Um, That's the first question that we'll look at, so I want to establish the truths of the hypostatic union, what it is, what it isn't, Then we can also look briefly at what is death, why can a spirit not die, and then also look more in depth of what happened when Jesus died, perhaps considering what the subjective psychological experience of death was or is. The second question, uh, which is related, that uh, this person submits, is I always thought Our Lord went to heaven first and then went to hell because he told the good thief that today he would be with him in paradise, referring to uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. But I have heard recently that he immediately went to hell to save souls in limbo and did not enter heaven until later. The resurrection, question mark, the ascension, question mark. Is it even meaningful to talk of time frames when dealing with heaven and hell? Is all of this just speculation? So in order to respond or reply to this question, we'll uh, look at the teaching on the descent into hell, and then some of the commentary, uh, the way the word today is used in St. Luke, and then we'll look specifically at some commentaries of that particular passage in Holy Scripture. So let's look at our first question, what happened when Jesus died? Is that something we can even know? So let's first establish the truth of the hypostatic union. What is it and what isn't it? The hypostatic union refers to the incarnation. It is the union in the divine person of God the Son of two natures. The divine nature, which he possesses from all eternity as being God, but also taking on the human nature. So that means God is, or Christ is fully man, And fully God. God the Son has taken on to Himself and united in His person our human nature. This is what it is. You know, what it isn't is um, a show, right? It's that was a docetous error that Christ only appeared as man. No, 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 he is fully man. Now, what we must understand uh, in the hypostatic union, in the incarnation, is that there's one subject, there's one I in Christ. That I is a divine I, it's the divine person, it's God the Son. So, whenever our Lord says I, that's who it is. That is the referent of the first person singular pronoun I, is God the Son. Now, sometimes he's speaking with reference to his human nature. Um, Sometimes he's speaking with reference to his divine nature, but it is always that divine I. So there's no human person in Christ. However, he is fully man, and this is a great mystery. So Christ is everything that a man is, except that he is not a human person, and of course he did not sin. He cannot sin because he is God. So Let's leave that as established, right? So that is what the deal is with Christ, if you might put it that way. Now, what is death? Death is the separation of the soul from the body, right? This is why we say men die, because they have a rational soul that lives on forever, that immaterial part of us that lives forever, uh, but our body decomposes when the soul is separated from it. And then, of course, we get our bodies back at the general resurrection because that is our natural state of things. We are composite creatures. Um, We don't say rocks die when we split them. Animals die because that immaterial life force we can call a soul, although it's not an eternal rational soul, separates. And that particular beast is no more. Now, why can a spirit not die? A spirit is not composed of parts, right? Death is a separation of two integral things. We are by nature a composite being, rational soul and body. So death is the severing of those things. So death really pertains to, most specifically, men. Angels do not die. They have no, nothing to separate them. They are a simple immaterial substance. You cannot kill a spirit. Because killing is separating, and there's a a simple thing, there's nothing to separate, because there's no composite parts, right? There's only one thing, and you can't sever it. So you can't kill God, you can't kill an angel, and of course you can't kill something which is not alive, so you can't kill a rock. Now what happened when Jesus died? Now I'm not sure I understand exactly what the person is getting at with this question. Um, what was the subjective experience that he had? Well, that is speculation. What, what, is death, what does it mean to undergo death? What is that experience? We will all find out, but we don't know with certainty of exactly what it is. You now, especially for our Lord, what was it like for the God-man to die? Well, that's mystery upon mystery, because what is it like to be God incarnate? Only he alone knows. But we do know that he is fully man, and understand, understands things as a man. It doesn't mean he's not God, but he understands things as man, and this is part of the mystery. So what is the subjective psychological experience of death? Well, that is a great mystery, and I'm afraid I don't have a really good answer for that. Um, but what we do need to understand is we cannot equate personhood with consciousness. Right, with this subjective psychological experience, it's, those things rest in the ontology of personhood. Right? If we equate being a person with consciousness or psychological subjective experiences, then we run into a problem, because until you reach the age of reason, then you wouldn't be a person. If you were unconscious, you wouldn't be a person. It is these things, the psychological subjective experience, this self-awareness, self-reflection. These are attributes of a person. The person is in the ontological realm and not the subjective psychological, if that makes sense. So there's really, in one sense, two questions. And that's why I brought these things up of, of what the hypostatic union is and isn't, and what is death? You know, what is the psychological subjective experience? Well, that's difficult to get at, you know, because we we want to know um, for ourselves, and we all will know. But more importantly, and this is where most theologians in the history of the Church have spent their time and attention, is on the ontological reality of what Christ is doing with regard to being, with regard to salvation, not so much focusing on what his subjective experience was. Although some have treated of it, Um, And I will email the the person who who submitted these questions with some of the resources that I have that they can look into for greater even greater depth in these things. Um, So what happened when Jesus died? Well, we can say because of the hypostatic union that God died. That's interesting to say, isn't it? God died on the cross because it is the person the person underwent death, um, it's not that his divinity died, it's not that his divinity was separated, but rather his human soul is separated from his human body, that is death. Um, and he experienced it as all men do, all men will. Um, now the Blessed Virgin Mary is Mother of God, she provided God the Son with a place for his human nature, right? She provided the material for his human nature. She gave birth not to a nature, but to a person. She gave birth to a divine person. All right, so the person undergoes gestation and birth. The same person undergoes death on a cross. This person is God. Now what the subjective experience of you know taking being divine and taking a human nature to yourself and uh, going through all the phases of human life as god well that's really only his to know it's his experience but the things that i've told you are the truth the truths of the, the church and revelation given to us that we can say these facts about the incarnation about this great mystery of that it is god who has come to save us by taking on our human nature Dying and then rising to new life. Um, so, if I have not answered the this part of the question sufficiently, you know, send me another email or if something. Uh, new has sparked your your curiosity. Please do let us know. Uh, moving on to the second question, this the, being related to the first, that this person thought our Lord went to heaven first and then went to hell because he told the good thief that today he would be with him in paradise. That. Seems a logical conclusion, um, reading from the, uh, the account of St. Luke in his 23rd chapter. But it is true that our Lord on Holy Saturday went to hell or Sheol or Limbo. He did not enter in, into heaven until later. Um, and is it meaningful to talk of time frames dealing with heaven and hell? In one sense, no, it's not really helpful. Um, things beyond our earthbound wayfaring life in this Valley of Tears. Time is very different. It's calculated different with the angels and those in purgatory. And um, that eterni- the eternity of heaven is, is an experience different. Um, so there's really, yeah, time is different. The experience of time, definitely. But we, we c- can kind of get at that. We kind of understand how we can experience time differently. When I was young, uh, playing outside with the boys on my block, you know, we would play in the summer, hour upon hour upon hour, um, and we would know, start sometimes early in the morning, play all day, maybe with a break here or there, and play. You know, Basically, we would play ball until we couldn't see anymore, and even probably beyond that. But we didn't notice the passage of time. Right? We, we kind of woke up to the fact that it was dark out, and we, we couldn't see anymore. Uh, because we were so engrossed with what we were doing, and I, this is kind of an analogy I like to think of of the way eternity is. It's, it's We don't notice the, any passage of time, because there is no passage of time. You're so focused on something that you love in the sense of heaven, it would be God, that we don't notice that there would be time, but philosophically it's it's much different than that, but I think we get at the experience of that when we get so focused on something that we don't notice the passage of time it also works obviously in the opposite way uh i don't know if, you know how long seconds feel when you're waiting for something you know growing up still um it, again when i was younger uh waiting for christmas the <laughs> december was such a long month um it took forever for christmas to get here or uh, if you're in school, waiting for the bell to ring to get out of school, things like that. We have this experience of time, um, which is different, but that's a bit of a digression. Let's look more closely about um, where our Lord went and why he went to different places and see if we can't uh, see if we can't make sense of what St. Luke is talking about here with the good thief on the cross. Well let's first look at the church's teaching on the descent into hell. And for that, you know, let's go to the common doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, he has a great exposition in his catechism. Um, so the reasons for Christ's descent into hell. And he gives us four reasons why Christ, together with his soul, descended into hell. Right. So his soul, his human soul, is separated from his body. He is, in that clinical definition, dead, philosophical definition, dead. So where does his soul go? Now remember that his body and his soul are always united with the divine word. They're still united hypostatically in the person of God the Son. So it is God's body in the tomb, it is God's human soul that is going down into hell. Uh, so first off, let's recognize that this hell is not the hell of the bad angels, not the hell of the damned. It's I often prefer, especially in the classes I give, I prefer to use the term, the Hebrew term Sheol which is the abode of the dead. It's where the souls of the just are waiting for the redemption, because heaven is not yet opened. They do not deserve the punishments of hell. Um, Perhaps they've been to purgatory and are out, or um, perhaps God counts as being in shield as purgatory, that's up to him, that I don't know. But this is the abode of the just who will go to heaven once it's opened by Christ. So this is the place where Christ goes. Now why? St. Thomas gives us four reasons. First, that he might bear the whole punishment of sin. Right, so remember death is a punishment of sin. Um, That in order to wholly atone for sin, Christ goes down into hell. Now the punishment of man's sin was not only the death of the body. There was also a punishment of the soul, according to St. Thomas. For seeing that sin had been committed in the soul, the soul is punished by being deprived of the beatific vision and as yet no atonement had been offered for the abolishment of this punishment so for this reason after death and before the coming of christ all even the holy patriarchs moses david they went down into this abode of the dead Sheol, or hell as it's rendered in the creeds so in order to bear the entire punishment due to sinners not in one sense, leaving no stone unturned, and Christ chose not only to die, but also that his soul should descend into hell. Thus it is said um, in the psalm, I am counted among them that go down into the pit. I am become as a man without help free among the dead. For others were there under constraint, whereas Christ was there as free he's definitely free, he brings freedom, he is the great liberator. The second reason St. Thomas gives us for the descent of Christ is that he might bring perfect aid to all his friends. For he had his friends not only in the world but also in hell, since one is Christ's friends by having charity. And in this abode of the dead there were many who had died in charity and faith in the Christ to come, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and the other righteous and perfect ones. And since Christ had visited his friends in the world and had given them aid by his death, he wished to visit his friends who were in this abode of the dead to assist them by coming to them. For it says in Ecclesiasticus, I will penetrate to all the the lower parts of the earth and will behold all that sleep and will enlighten all that hope in the Lord. Thirdly, St. Thomas says that our Lord descended into hell that he might completely overcome the devil. Since a man's triumph over another is complete when he conquers him, not only in the open field, but attacks him in his stronghold and deprives him of his kingdom and even of his dwelling place. Now, Christ had triumphed over the devil, uh, for example, when he was tempted in the desert, that's a triumph, and had conquered him on the cross, of course thus uh, our lord says now is the judgment of the world now shall the prince of this world that is the devil be cast out this is recorded by saint john and therefore that his victory might be complete it was his will to deprive the devil of his throne and imprison him in his own house which is hell for this reason he descended into hell deprived the devil of his own and bound him and carried off his spoils For it says in Colossians, despoiling the principalities and powers, those are choirs of angels, he hath exposed them confidently, openly triumphing over them in himself. Moreover, Christ had been given power and possession in heaven and on earth. He wished to take possession of hell so that, to quote the apostle, in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those that are in heaven, on earth and under the earth. As St. Paul writes to the Philippians, in my name they shall cast out devils. That's recorded in Mark. The fourth reason St. Thomas gives is to deliver the saints who were in hell. For just as Christ wished to suffer death that he might deliver the living from the, from death, so did he wish to descend into hell in order to deliver those who were there. So in the prophet Zachariah, or er, Zachary. There Thou also, by the blood of thy testament, hath sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. And again in Hosea, O death, I will be thy death. O hell, I will be thy bite. For although Christ destroyed death altogether, he did not altogether destroy hell, but took a piece out of it, as it were, in that he did not deliver all who were there, but only those who were free from mortal sin, as well as original sin. As regards the latter, that is, original sin, they were freed personally therefrom by circumcision or before circumcision, either in the case of those who died before having the use of reason, by the faith of their parents who were believers, or in the case of adults, by sacrifices and their faith in Christ to come, the observance of the old law. Yet all these were in hell as having contracted original sin, because we do not have a right to see God face to face. This is what original sin has lost for us, sanctifying grace, that ability to see God face to face. So, having contracted original sin from Adam, from which, as members of the human race, they could not be freed except by Christ, therefore Christ left there those who had gone down there with the stain of mortal sin, as well as the uncircumcised children, and in this sense he said, O hell, I will be thy bite. Thus we know that Christ descended into hell, and why, according to St. Thomas Aquinas. He goes on, however, and says that we may learn things from Christ's descent. So there are four points he gives us that we can gather for our instruction about Christ's descent into the abode of the dead. First, affirm hope in God, because no matter how great a man's afflictions may be, he should always hope in God's assistance and trust in him. Nothing is so grievous as to be in hell. So if Christ freed those who were free who were in hell, anyone, provided he is a friend of God, should be confident that God will deliver him from his straits, whatever they are. Second, we ought to conceive fear and cast away presumption. For although Christ suffered for sinners and descended into hell, yet he did not deliver all, but only those who were free from mortal sin, as he said earlier whereas he left those who had died in mortal sin. Consequently, no one who goes down to hell in a state of mortal sin may hope for pardon, but he will remain in hell as long as the Holy Fathers remain in paradise, that is, for all eternity. For it says in the Gospel of Matthew, these shall go go into everlasting punishment, but the just into life everlasting. Third thing that we learn from Christ's descent, we should bear this in mind. For as Christ descended into hell for our salvation, so we ought to take care to descend there by considering its punishments, even as did the saintly Hezekiah. I said, it is written, in the midst of my days I shall go to the gates of hell. For anyone who in thought frequently goes down to hell in life is not likely to go down there in death, because such thoughts withdraw us from sin. Meditation upon the pains of hell, the losses of hell, do indeed have a salutary effect on us. Thus we observe that the people of this world who are wary of, uh, do, of evil doing or fear, uh, uh, sorry, we observe people uh, of this world who are wary of evil doing for fear of temporal punishment. Right? Don't do the crime if you can't do the time. Well time stops in hell, it's eternal. So how much more, then, should we be wary for fear of the punishment of hell, for which is, which is greater both in respect to its severity than anything we can dish out here on earth and in respect to its manifold nature. For it is said in Ecclesiastes, Remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin. And lastly, Thomas instructs us that we can learn from Christ's descent into hell that we may gather an example of love. Christ descended into hell in order to deliver his own. So too we ought to descend there in order to help our friends, inasmuch as they are helpless. Therefore we ought to help those who are in purgatory. Surely he would be very cruel who would not help his friend in an earthly prison. Much more cruel, then, is he who does not help his friend in purgatory, since there is no comparison between the world's punishments and those of purgatory. For it says, in Job, have pity on me, have pity on me, at least you, my friends, for the hand of the Lord hath touched me. And again, it is a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead, that they be loosed from sins, that is from the 2nd Maccabees. According to St. Augustine, this help is given to them under three forms, by Masses, by prayers, and by almsgiving, and St. Gregory adds a fourth fasting. And it is no wonder seeing that even in this world one friend can pay a debt for another, but this applies only to those who are in purgatory. So let us take Thomas Aquinas's advice and help our friends in purgatory. So this is short Thomas's teaching on the descent into hell. This is a fact. It's in the Creed. It's dogma. We have to believe that Christ did do this on Holy Saturday. So let's look towards what St. Luke is talking about from the words of the cross. Now, the first thing I would like to do is look at um, the way St. Luke uses the term, the idea, today throughout his gospel and other places in his gospel. For example, in the second chapter, verse 11, "For For this day is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord in the city of David. The message of Jesus' birth regards something that ha- happening today. There's an emphasis there. Indeed, Luke frequently reminds readers that God's salvation is available today. Later, in the fourth chapter, verse 21, And he began to say to them, This day is fulfilled, this scripture in your ears. Right, this is when he's in the synagogue and the, uh, he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. So with Jesus, the time of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises in the scriptures is over. The messianic jubilee announced by Isaiah is now at hand. Behold, now is the acceptable time, as St. Paul writes in the second letter to the Corinthians. Now is the acceptable time, today. Here and later in our Lord's ministry, he will emphasize that God's blessings are available today. So there's... There's more meaning behind the term today, as St. Luke uses it, than simply a, a calendar thing. Looking at his fifth chapter, verse 26, we have seen incredible things today. As with Peter's mother-in-law, the healing that's referred to in verse 26 of chapter 5 works immediately. Right? It's the getting telling someone, to st- uh, a paralytic, to stand up. The verb stood up, like the verb to rise, is also used for our Lord's Resurrection, so we're also seeing a connection here um, today and the Resurrection, even though it's the third day, it's temporally, according to the timeline of the Gospels, it's in the future, it's tomorrow, but it's actually, in a sense, metaphysically, soteriologically, it's today. The man responds to his gift of new life by glorifying God, and everyone else likewise glorify God in this miracle. So by his life and mission, our Lord leads others to glorify God as they experience God's saving action today. Further in Luke's gospel, in uh, chapter 19, verse 5, And when Jesus was come to the place, looking up, he saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for this day I must abide in thy house. And, And further on in verse 9, Jesus said to him, This day is salvation. Come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. Note well the parallel here to Zacchaeus and the good thief. Come down from the tree, Zacchaeus. Salvation has come today. What was lost has now been found. And there is a relation to our Lord's t- the saying today and the coming of salvation for the good thief, who is on, on, in his own tree, as it were and he met with salvation in the Lord. Now, let's look. uh, So, what I want to say about looking at the way Luke uses today in some of the examples of his gospel, it's akin, I think, to the way St. John uses the term sign, or looks at signs, or hour. Not necessarily signs per se, but uh, the term hour. So John does talk about signs as opposed to miracles. They're signs, they're theophanies, um, and so they have a, a deeper meaning that he's relating in his use, so that there's something there too, but that takes us too far afield. The way John uses the hour, if you recall in John's Gospel, Our Lady appears, the wedding feast of Cana, they have no wine, What is that to mean to thee? Isn't my hour has not yet come. Next time we see Our Lady in John's Gospels at the foot of the cross, the hour is come. All right. so for John, he's using this hour. It's, it's not like he's looking at his watch and saying, oh, no, it's not, it's not time for wine, it's not four o'clock or something, it's not happy hour. Uh, no, the hour has this deeper meaning as used by the evangelist. I think in a similar way that St. Luke is using today throughout his Gospel um, in a deeper and wider understanding than simply a way of telling time. But let's look and see how we're really to understand Luke 23:43 and the words to dismiss the good thief on the cross. So, let's look at some of the church fathers. St. Ambrose, with regard to this verse. The good thief asked the Lord to remember him when he came into his kingdom. But the Lord said, Truly, truly, I say to you, this day you shall be with me in paradise. For life is to be with Christ. Because where Christ is, there is the kingdom. That's a good insight. Where Christ is, there is the kingdom. This is a good lesson for us, especially as we're working our way through Lent and working through, <laughs> working our way through a veil of tears of this life. We already have a foretaste of heaven with Christ. Wherever Christ is, there is paradise. So... That's the secret of the saints, of how they endured suffering and how they put up with so many things, is because they were focused on Christ, and they began to possess him in the state of grace, in holy communion, in the growth of their spiritual life. Um, They got a foretaste of heaven before the full blossoming in in paradise as it's normally understood. St. Augustine. He writes with reference to this verse in the 23rd chapter of St. Luke. Recognize to whom you are commending yourself. You believe I am going to come, but even before I come, I am everywhere. That is why, although I am about to descend into hell, I have you with me in paradise today. So St. Augustine is putting words, putting the meaning of the words on our Lord's lips, as it were. You are with me, and not entrusted to someone else. You see, my humility has come down to mortal human beings and to the dead, but my divinity has never departed from paradise." This is Saint Augustine. So I am everywhere, right? He's pointing to the ontology of Christ's person, right? The divinity of Christ's person that he is paradise and wherever he is, is paradise. Um, So even here in this life, even on the cross with the good thief and about to go down into hell, which it seems that he took actually, the according to Augustine, it seems that he actually took the, the thief to hell with him first. He went down to the abode of the dead um, because he kept him with him, because that's where paradise is, which is something even more profound than simply th- thinking the blissful thought that, oh, the, the good thief went straight up to heaven. Well, who's in heaven? What gives us the bliss of heaven? God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, the Trinity. Um, so if you're if you're with if you're with God wherever you are is paradise. Now, further on there's other commentaries on this verse. So the line is I say to thee, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. That is in a place of rest with the souls of the just, which was Sheol at this time because heaven, we think of heaven as contrary to hell. Um, was not yet open so the construction is not it's been pointed out i say to thee this day but thou shalt be with me this day in paradise in paradise that is in the happy state of rest joy and peace everlasting christ was pleased by a special privilege to reward the faith and confession of the penitent thief with a full discharge of all his sins both as to the guilt and punishment and to introduce him immediately after death Into the happy society of the saints, whose limbo, that is the place of their confinement, was now made a paradise by our Lord's going there. And this is Shaliner, his his, uh, commentary on that verse. So Christ going down into hell, that descent transforms it into paradise simply by his presence. Um, So I think that's perhaps the best uh, so far, the best answer and the best realization to understand. The best best truth being communicated by the evangelist in retelling this historical event of the conversation of our Lord with the good thief is that Christ is heaven. Christ is heaven. That's that's a profound truth that we need to get our heads around. So it's something not separated from Him. It's not like oh yeah you go there. No. Christ is heaven. And when we get there, that's who we long to see, uh, to have him show us the Father and the Holy Ghost. So let's continue with some of these commentaries. Um, There's a lot of rich material here. The soul of the good thief was that same day with Jesus Christ in the felicity of the saints, in Abraham's bosom, or in heaven, where Jesus was always present by his divinity. This is a comment of St. Augustine again. So Christ is always in heaven. Because he's God. He's God the Son. Now, does that mean his body? It is now, after the ascension. But on Good Friday? No, it was put in the tomb. Holy Saturday, it was put in the tomb until early Sunday morning when it rose. Rose unto new life. St. Cyril of Jerusalem says he entered heaven before all the patriarchs and prophets. That is, the, the good thief. St. Chrysostom thinks that paradise was immediately opened to him, and that he entered heaven, the first of mankind. This is speculation on parts of these doctors of the church. Um, Let's see what else we have here. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise, that is, in a place of pleasure where thou mayest be in the beatitude and beatific vision of God, that is, today I will make thee happy forever. I will make thee a king, reigning in the kingdom of glory with me this day." Well, well, which is not untrue, because Christ is God and he is heaven, right? Heaven is to be in his presence, to see his divinity face to face. And so there's confluence here of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. John Chrysostom, St. Gregory of Nyssa, and St. Augustine. Um, They all explain paradise. Uh, He explains paradise by heaven, that is celestial beatitude, and is certain that Christ on the day which he died did not go up to heaven with the thief, but went down into the limbus patrum, that is Sheol or the the, uh, limbo of the fathers, and imparted to them the vision of his Godhead, and thus made them blessed, changing the order of things. For he then made limbus, that is this edge of, of hell, this Sheol, to be paradise, where the lower parts the upper, so that hell should be heaven. Just as in one sense we can say that being crucified with Christ is a foretaste of paradise, not because of the suffering of crucifixion, but because of the presence of Christ. For where Christ is, there is paradise. Where the vision and beatitude of uh, where the v- vision and beatitude of God, there is heaven. For as to what Euthemius and other Greeks say, denying that the souls of the saints see god before the judgment are and are happy by paradise they understand an earthly place that to which enoch was carried but this is not true this is cannot be so says the fathers for it is of the faith that christ shortly after his death went down into the infernum that is the limbus of the fathers but he did not go into any earthly paradise it's moreover uncertain uh, i'm sorry um observe here the liberality of christ who exceeds our prayers and our vows. The thief only prayed Christ to remember him when he came into his kingdom. Christ, at the same time, promised him a kingdom that he might reign in it as a king. This this day, says Eusebius of Emesa, in his homily on the blessed thief, as if he would say, O my faithful companion and one, only witness of so great a triumph, dost thou think that I need to be so earnestly entreated to remember thee This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And again, Christ, when placed on the yoke, that is on the patibulum of the cross, as an arbiter between the two condemned, rejected him who denied and received the one who confessed. On the latter he bestowed a kingdom, the former he leaves in hell. So let us believe that he he will come to judge, our Lord. Our Lord will come to judge whom we see to have already on the cross exercised judgment. This is the most sweet answer of Christ to the thief, which Fulgentius calls the Testament of Christ, written with the pen of the cross. This commentary you can find uh, in Cornelius Alapide. So that gives us some insight um, to Christ descending into hell um, and why that was the case what happened to the good thief, what heaven really is, and some insights into the person of Christ, the hypostatic union, that Christ is fully God always, Christ is fully man, uh, taking the the nature, our human nature, from the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost and keeping that nature with him. This union is permanent, that's indicated by the Ascension that our human nature now reigns at the right hand of God the Father because it is united to his only unbe- His only begotten Son, God the Son, Christ our Lord. So hopefully I've made this clear. Hopefully I've not bored you too much. Um, I hope you're having a good and grace-filled Lent. If you have any questions or need clarifications, please feel free to, to email us um, at pastor at saintstanparish.com. I think that's it. I don't email myself, so I don't know. Um, check the bulletin. It's, it's in the bulletin. Pertinent information is in the bulletin. Um, and who knows, maybe next week I'll actually have Steve and Andy back. So God bless and God love you.